Today, I'm going to read to you Proof of the Pudding by O. Henry. And before we get started, I wanted to describe a couple of things about O. Henry and his use of language, which is something that I very much admire and enjoy and look for in submissions for Troubadour magazine. Now, I'm not trying to say that everyone has to use language the way that O. Henry does, but the principle behind it, I think, is very important to romantic literature. It's something that I don't see anymore, and the only times I see it today is not in the romantic sense that O. Henry used it in, but in a ridiculous sense of the loss of significance and meaning and Derrida and, and all this, you know, uh, postmodernist garbage, which has eliminated the attempt of clarity and objectivity, you know, in communication, saying that nothing means anything, anything means nothing. And so you can put anything you want. You can all of a sudden start using numbers and symbols that nobody understands. That's not what I'm saying here. That's not the kind of thing that O. Henry is doing in his short stories. He's using language and, and he's using it to be um, communicative, but he's using it imaginatively. And this use of imagination, creativity, ingenuity, and playfulness with language is something that I don't see and really would love to see a little bit of this put back into the culture, because I think it helps us understand language a little bit better. So this story is Proof of the Pudding. And, you know, you're going to see a little bit of this language, but not only does it use this language, and it's one of my favorite O. Henry stories, but the other thing that it really does beautifully that I really like is it. the story itself represents a lot of what I like about O. Henry and, and um, you know, romantic literature and this troubadour. I think O. Henry was you know, a, a true troubadour in the very sense of that word. He, more than anyone, more than Hawthorne and Poe even, really popularized the short story in the early 1900s. You know, it became a thing after more after him than ever before, even, even the Hawthorns and the Poes that preceded him. So uh, we're going to read this story. Let me give you a couple of examples of what to look for, because when you enter an O. Henry story, if you're not prepared for it, it may jar you and make you or unlikely to understand and enter his world, because you need to have a playfulness and be ready for the playfulness of his language. So just to give you an example, the, the story, which is about an editor and a writer. So again, this is even better for the Troubadour magazine. And, you know, I think the relationship between the two are very interesting and, and what the, you know, O. Henry's famous for his twist endings. So the twist ending is beautiful twist ending here. And I think you'll really appreciate it. And it, it goes to drive home what I'm trying to talk about at uh, Troubadour. And the writer who is, of course, like many writers, he's struggling often. Sometimes he's making money. Sometimes he's struggling. And his wife, you know, um, who even his wife is romantic. I mean, this is an O. Henry story. So she, she mentioned something about money, but the way she puts it is she, she says, um, you know, when she's feeding him, when she's, you know, uh, giving him dinner, she says at dinner, they sat down to a dish that a hungry schoolboy could have encompassed at a gulp. Okay. So this is, instead of saying they didn't have a lot to eat, 
he says a hungry schoolboy could have encompassed it at a gulp. That metaphor, that that use of figurative language, that is romantic. You know, it's it's the the saying that I have on troubadourmag.com that any man who calls a spade a spade is fit only to use one. So there's something imaginative necessary, in my view, in the use of language. Okay, here's what she says next, and this is um, pretty funny if you know anything about literature. And this is a, the wife of an author to her husband. And she says, um, Daw commented, it's, uh, it's ma poussant hash, said Mrs. Daw. It may not be art, but I do wish you would do a five-course Marion Crawford cereal with an Ella Wheeler Wilcox sonnet for de- dessert. I'm hungry. So what she's saying is Guy de Montpousson was one of the most um, famous and you know iconoclastic French short story writers, and um, Marion Crawford was an Italian-American novelist of uh, historical romance, again, selling lots of copies. And Ella Wheeler, Ella, Ella Wheeler Wilcox was an American poet of sentimental poetry that sold and made, made her actually hungry. So by, by kind of comparing it to like a five-course Marion Crawford cereal, like a, fi- like a, a five-course meal, that, that kind of comparison, that, that metaphor of the author who makes money and a five-course meal that actually feeds that, that kind of relationship, that is romantic. And it's, you know, she, the, the wife is drawing some conclusions for the husband. Okay, so I'm going to read the story a couple terms. So again, um, O'Henry is very playful with language. Sometimes he uses words you'll never have read or heard of. This is true of me. I never heard of a lot of the words he says. And sometimes he makes up words, you know, neologisms, because he's playing with it, or he'll pl- do a play on words. Because again, there's there's that kind of romantic use of language. So just a couple quick words, and, and you can look this up later, but, you know, it says a vitreous optic, and what that just means is vitreous um, is, is light glass in appearance, and uh, the lure of the vernal coquette. So vernal is basically of spring, essentially. So it's a spring, and then a coquette is a woman. Um, Carrera marble is marble from a town in northwest Italy. Alorum is just an archaic way of saying alarm. And then the important word is bathos. This I never even heard of this word before I read this story. But bathos, which sounds kind of like pathos, you know, literary literary term. And in literature... Bathos with a B means an effect of anticlimax created by an unintentional lapse in mood from sublime to the trivial or ridiculous. And you'll see why that is the perfect term for this story. Once you understand it, it you know, what's going on in the plot and the characters and, you know, what, what happens in the twist ending, bathos, and, and the problem, for instance, with the writer, bathos is the perfect word at this point. Okay, so let's go into a reading of Proof of the Pudding by O. Henry, and stick around afterwards for a very brief commentary. Spring winked a vitreous optic at editor Westbrook of the Minerva magazine, and deflected him from his course. He had lunched in his favorite corner of a Broadway hotel, and was returning to his office when his feet became entangled in the lure of the vernal coquette, which is by way of saying that he turned eastward in 26th Street 
safely forded the spring freshet of vehicles in Fifth Avenue and meandered along the walks of budding Madison Square. The lenient air in the settings of the little park almost formed a pastoral. The color motif was green, the presiding shade at the creation of man and vegetation. The callow grass between the walks was the color of verdigris, a poisonous green, reminiscent of the horde of derelict humans that had breathed upon the soil during the summer and autumn. The bursting tree buds looked strangely familiar to those who had botanized among the garnishings of the fish course of a forty-cent dinner. The sky above was of that pale aquamarine tint that hall-room poets rhyme with true and sue and coo. The one natural and frank color visible was the ostensible green of the newly painted benches. A shade between the color of a pickled cucumber and that of a last year's fast black crevinette raincoat. But to the city-bred eye of editor Westbrook, the landscape appeared a masterpiece. And now, whether you are of those who rush in, or of the gentle concourse that fears to tread, you must follow in a brief invasion of the editor's mind. Editor Westbrook's spirit was contented and serene. The April number of the Minerva had sold its entire edition before the tenth day of the month. A news dealer in Keokuk had written that he could have sold fifty copies more if he had had them. The owners of the magazine had raised his, the editor's, salary. He had just installed in his home a jewel of a recently imported cook who was afraid of policemen, and the morning papers had published in full a speech he had made at a publisher's banquet. Also, there were echoing in his mind the jubilant notes of a splendid song that his charming young wife had sung to him before he left his uptown apartment that morning. She was taking enthusiastic interest in her music of late, practicing early and diligently. When he had complimented her on the improvement in her voice, she had fairly hugged him for joy at his praise. He felt, too, the benign tonic medicament of the trained nurse, spring tripping softly adown the wards of the convalescent city. While the editor Westbrook was sauntering between the rows of park benches, already filling with vagrants and the guardians of lawless childhood, he felt his sleeve grasped and held. Suspecting that he was about to be panhandled, he turned a cold and unprofitable face and saw that his captor was Daw, Shackleford, Daw, dingy, almost ragged, the genteel scarcely visible in him through the deeper lines of the shabby. While the editor is pulling himself out of his surprise, a flashlight biography of Daw is offered. He was a fiction writer, and one of Westbrook's old acquaintances. At one time, they might have called each other old friends. Daw had some money in those days, and lived in a decent apartment house near Westbrook's. The two families went often 
to theaters and dinners together. Mrs. Daw and Mrs. Westbrook became dearest friends. Then one day, a little tentacle of the octopus, just to amuse itself, ingurgitated Daw's capital, and he moved to the Gramercy Park neighborhood where one, for a few groats per week, may sit upon one's trunk under eight branched chandeliers and opposite Carrera marble mantles and watch the mice play upon the floor. Daw thought to live by writing fiction. Now and then he sold a story. He submitted many to Westbrook. The Minerva printed one or two of them. The rest were returned. Westbrook sent a careful and conscientious personal letter with each rejected manuscript, pointing out in detail his reasons for considering it unavailable. Editor Westbrook had his own clear conception of what constituted good fiction. So had Daw. Mrs. Daw was mainly concerned about the constituents of the scanty dishes of food that she managed to scrape together. One day, Daw had been spouting to her about the excellencies of certain French writers. At dinner, they sat down to a dish that a hungry schoolboy could have encompassed at a gulp. Daw commented, It's ma poussin hash, said Mrs. Daw. It may not be art, but I do wish you would do a five-course Marion Crawford cereal with an Ella Wheeler-Wilcox sonnet for dessert. I'm hungry. As far as this from success was Shackelford Daw, when he plucked editor Westbrook's sleeve in Madison Square. That was the first time the editor had seen Daw in several months. Why, Shack, is that you? said Westbrook, somewhat awkwardly, for the form of his phrase seemed to touch upon the other's changed appearance. Sit down for a minute, said Daw, tugging at his sleeve. This is my office. I can't come to yours, looking as I do. Oh, sit down. You won't be disgraced. Those half-plucked birds on the other benches will take you for a swell porch climber. They won't know you are only an editor. Smoke, Jack? said Editor Westbrook, sinking cautiously upon the virulent green bench. He always yielded gracefully when he did yield. Daw snapped at the cigar as a kingfisher darts at a sun perch, or a girl pecks at a chocolate cream. I have just... began the editor. Oh, I know, don't finish, said Daw. Give me a match. You have just ten minutes to spare. How did you manage to get past my office boy and invade my sanctum? There he goes now, throwing his club at a dog that couldn't read the keep-off-the-grass signs. How goes the writing? asked the editor. Look at me, said Daw, for your answer. Now don't put on that embarrassed, friendly-but-honest look and ask me why I don't get a job as a wine agent or a cab driver. I'm in the fight to a finish. I know I can write good fiction, and I'll force you fellows to admit it yet. I'll make you change the spelling of regrets to C-H-E-Q-U-E before I'm done with you. Editor Westbrook gazed through his nose glasses with a sweetly sorrowful, omniscient, sympathetic, skeptical expression. The copyrighted expression of the editor beleaguered by the unavailable contributor. Have you read the last story I sent you, The Allurum of the Soul? asked Daw. Carefully. I hesitated over that story, Shack. Really, I did. 
It has some good points. I was writing you a letter to send with it when it goes back to you. I, I regret. Never mind the regrets, said Daw grimly. There's nothing in salve nor, nor sting in them anymore. What I want to know is why. Come now, out with the good points first. The story, said Westbrook deliberately, after a suppressed sigh, is written around an almost original plot. C- characterization, the best you have done. Construction, almost as good. Except for a few weak joints, which might be strengthened by a few changes and touches. It was a good story, except... I can write English, can't I? interrupted Daw. I have always told you, said the editor, that you had a style. Then the trouble is the the same old thing, said Editor Westbrook. You work up to your climax like an artist, and then you turn yourself into a photographer. I don't know what form of obstinate madness possesses you, Shaq, but that is what you do with everything that you write. No, I will retract the comparison with the photographer. Now and then photography, in spite of its impossible perspective, manages to record a fleeting glimpse of truth. But you spoil every denouement by those flat, drab, obliterating strokes of your brush that I have so often complained of. If you would rise to the literary pinnacle of your dramatic scenes and paint them in the high colors that art requires, the postman would leave fewer bulky, self-addressed envelopes at your door. Oh, fiddle and footlights, cried Daw derisively. You've got that old sawmill drama kink in your brain yet. When the man with the black mustache kidnaps golden hair Bessie, you are bound to have the mother kneel and raise her hands in the spotlight and say, May high heaven witness that I will rest neither night nor day till the heartless villain that has stolen me child feels the weight of another's vengeance. Editor Westbrook conceded a smile of impervious complacency. I think, said he, that in real life, the woman would express herself in those words, or in very similar ones. Not in a six hundred nights run anywhere but on the stage, said Daw hotly. I'll tell you what she'd say in real life. She'd say, what, Bessie, led away by a strange man? Good lord, it's one trouble after another. Get my other hat. I must hurry around to the police station. Why wasn't anybody looking after her? I'd like to know. For God's sake, get out of my way or I'll never get ready. Not that hat. The brown one with the velvet bows. Bessie must have been crazy. She's usually shy of strangers. Is that too much powder? Lordy, how I'm upset. That's the way she'd talk, continued Daw. People in real life don't fly into heroics and blank verse at emotional crisis. They simply can't do it. If they talk at all on such occasions, they draw from the same vocabulary that they use every day, and muddle up their words and ideas a little more. That's all. Shack, said Editor Westbrook impressively. Did you ever pick up the mangled and lifeless form of a child from under the fender of a streetcar, and carry it in your arms and lay it down before the distracted mother? Did you ever do that and listen to the words of grief and despair as they flowed spontaneously from her lips? I never did, said Daw. Did you? Well, no, said Editor Westbrook with a slight frown. But I can well imagine what she would say. So can I, said Daw. And now the fitting time had come for Editor Westbrook to play the oracle and silence his opinionated contributor. It was not for an unarrived fictionist to dictate words to be uttered by the heroes and heroines of the Minerva magazine, contrary to the theories of the editor thereof. 
My dear Shack, said he, if I know anything of life, I know that every sudden, deep, and tragic emotion in the human heart calls forth an opposite, concordant, comfortable, and proportionate expression of feeling. How much of this inevitable accord between expression and feeling should be attributed to nature, and how much to the influence of art, it would be difficult to say. The sublimely terrible roar of the lioness that has been deprived of her cubs is dramatically as far above her customary whine and purr as the kingly and transcendent utterances of Lear are above the level of his senile vaporings. But it is also true that all men and women have what may be called a subconscious dramatic sense that is awakened by a sufficiently deep and powerful emotion, a sense unconsciously acquired from literature and the stage that prompts them to express those emotions in language, befitting their importance in histrionic value. And in the name of the seven sacred saddle blankets of Sagittarius, where did the stage and literature get the stunt? asked Daw. From life, answered the editor triumphantly. The story writer rose from the bench and gesticulated eloquently, but dumbly. He was beggared for words with which to formulate adequately his dissent. On a bench nearby, a frowsy loafer opened his red eyes and perceived that his moral support was due a downtrodden brother. Punch him on, Jack, he called hoarsely to Daw. What's he coming making a noise like a penny arcade for a monk's drumman that comes in the square to set and thunk? Editor Westbrook looked at his watch with an affected show of leisure. Tell me, asked Daw with truculent anxiety, what special faults in the allurum of the soul cause you to throw it down? When Gabriel Murray, said Westbrook, goes to his telephone and is told that his fiancée has been shot by a burglar, he says, I do not recall the exact words, but I do, said Daw. He says, damn central, she always cuts me off. And then to his friend, Say, Tommy, does a thirty-two bullet make a big hole? It's kind of a hard luck, ain't it? Could you get me a drink from the sideboard, Tommy? No, straight, nothing on the side. And again, continued the editor, without pausing for argument, when Bernice opens the letter from her husband, informing her that he has fled with the manicure girl, her words are, let me see, she says, interposed the author, well, what do you think of that? Absurdly inappropriate words, said Westbrook presenting an anticlimax, plunging the story into hopeless bathos. Worse yet, they mirror life falsely. No human being ever uttered banal colloquialisms when confronted by sudden tragedy. Wrong, said Daw, closing his unshaven jaws doggedly. I say no man or woman ever spouts a high flutin' talk when they go up against a real climax. They talk naturally and a little worse. The editor rose from the bench with his air of indulgence and inside information. "'Say, Westbrook,' said Daw, pinning him by the lapel, "'would you have accepted the allurum of the soul "'if you had believed that the actions and words of the characters "'were true to life in the parts of the story that we discussed?' "'It is very likely that I would, if you believed it that way,' said the editor, "'but I have explained to you that I do not. "'If I could prove to you that I am right?' I'm sorry, Shaq, but I'm afraid I haven't time to argue any further just now. I don't want to argue, said Dahl. I want to demonstrate to you, from life itself, that my view is the correct one. How could you do that? asked Westbrook in a surprised tone. 
Listen, said the rider seriously, I have thought of a way. It is important to me that my theory of true-to-life fiction be recognized as correct by the magazines. I've fought for it for three years, and I'm down to my last dollar, with two months' rent due. I have applied the opposite of your theory, said the editor, in selecting the fiction for the Minerva magazine. The circulation has gone up from 90,000 to 400,000, said Daw, whereas it could have been boosted to a million. You said something to me just now about demonstrating your pet theory. I will. If you give me about a half an hour of your time, I'll prove to you that I am right. I'll prove it by Louise. Your wife? exclaimed Westbrook. How? Well, not exactly by her, but with her, said Daw. Now, you know how devoted and loving Louise has always been. She thinks I'm the only genuine preparation on the market that bears the old doctor's signature. She's been fonder and more faithful than ever since I've been cast for the neglected genius part. Indeed, she is a charming and admirable life companion, agreed the editor. I remember what inseparable friends she and Mrs. Westbrook once were. We are both lucky chaps, Shack, to have such wives. You must bring Mrs. Daw up some evening soon, and we'll have one of those informal chafing dish suppers that we used to enjoy so much. Later, said Daw, when I get another shirt, and now I'll tell you my scheme. When I was about to leave home after breakfast, if you can call tea an oatmeal breakfast, Louise told me she was going to visit her aunt in 89th Street. She said she would return home at 3 o'clock. She was always on time to a minute. It is now, Daw glanced toward the editor's watch pocket, 27 minutes to 3, said Westbrook, scanning his timepiece. We have just enough time, said Daw. We will go to my flat at once. I will write a note, address it to her, and leave it on the table where she will see it as she enters the door. You and I will be in the dining room, concealed by the portieres. In that note, I'll say that I have fled from her forever, with an affinity who understands the needs of my artistic soul, as she never did. When she reads it, we will observe her actions and hear her words. Then we will know which theory is the correct one, yours or mine. Oh, never, exclaimed the editor, shaking his head. That's, that, that would be inexcusably cruel. I could not consent to have Mrs. Daw feelings played upon in such a manner. Brace up, said the writer. I guess I think as much of her as you do. It's for her benefit as well as mine. I've got to get a market for my stories in some ways. It won't hurt Louise. She's healthy and sound. Her heart goes as strong as a 98-cent watch. It'll last only for a minute, and then I'll step out and explain to her. You really owe it to me to give me the chance, Westbrook. Editor Westbrook at length yielded, though but half-willingly, and in the half of him that consented lurked the vivisectionist that is in all of us. Let him who has not used the scalpel rise and stand in his place. Pity tis that there are not enough rabbits and guinea pigs to go around. The two experimenters, in art, left the square and hurried eastward and then to the south until they arrived in the Gramercy neighborhood. Within its high iron railings, the little park had put on its smart coat of vernal green, and was admiring itself in its fountain mirror. 
outside the railings, the hollow square of crumbling houses, shells of a bygone gentry, leaned as if in ghostly gossip over the forgotten doings of the vanished quality, sick transit gloria urbis. Thus passes the glory of the city. A block or two north of the park, Daw steered the editor again eastward. Then, after covering a short distance, into a lofty but narrow flathouse burdened with a floridly over-decorated facade. To the fifth story they toiled, and Daw, panting, pushed his latch-key into the door of one of the front flats. When the door opened, Editor Westbrook saw, with feelings of pity, how meanly and meagerly the rooms were furnished. "'Get a chair, if you can find one,' said Daw, "'while I hunt up pen and ink. "'Hello, what's this?' Here's a note from Louise. She must have left it here when she went out this morning. He picked up an envelope that lay on the center table and tore it open. He began to read the letter that he drew out of it, and once having begun it aloud, he so read it through to the end. These are the words that Editor Westbrook heard. Dear Shackelford, by the time you get this, I will be about a hundred miles away and still a-going. I've got a place in the course of the Occidental Opera Company, and we start on the road today at twelve o'clock. I didn't want to starve to death, and so I decided to make my own living. I'm not coming back. Mrs. Westbrook is going with me. She said she was tired of living with a combination phonograph, iceberg, and dictionary, and she's not coming back either. We've been practicing the songs and dances for two months on the quiet. I hope you will be successful and get along all right. Goodbye, Louise. Daw dropped the letter, covered his face with his trembling hands, and cried out in a deep, vibrating voice, My God, why hast thou given me this cup to drink? Since she is false, then let thy heaven's fairest gifts, faith and love, become the jesting bywords of traitors and friends. Editor Westbrook's glasses fell to the floor. The fingers of one hand fumbled with a button on his coat as he blurted between his pale lips, Say, Shack, ain't that a hell of a note? Wouldn't that knock you off your porch, Shack? Ain't it hell now, Shack? Ain't it? Everybody's raving about the real fancy two-step. Everybody wants to do this my fancy new step. It's a funny bear, carrot on a tear. Well, I do declare it is classy. Gabby brought the dance and it's got us all a-going. Since she came, no other twirl has had any showing. It's a music treat for your dancing feet. It is flashy but neat. Just a twist and a bend that you hope will not end. Oh, oh, that Gabby, Gabby Glide. It's just a real Parisian flight. Prance along as though you were upon the boulevard. Dance it here and dance it there and keep on dancing hard. Start into the side, do the Paris right. Swing up here and wide. Oh, oh, that Gabby, Gabby Glide. Don't lag or let your feelings hide. Do the 
like the Christmas and go back the other way. Do the forward dip and see how you begin to sway. Oh, oh, that Gabby Gabby glide. We are going crazy about this new game, bewitching. We can't stop our feet at all, they feel certain itching. You are in the air, floating here and there. Not a single care comes of stealing. Talk about your other life, why they aren't in it. You feel all the joys of life in one single minute. For you travel so with a lot of gold. Can you stop? I guess no. It's a big joyful trip. It's a heavenly trip. Oh, oh, that Gabby Gabby glide. It's just a real Parisian smile. Prance along as though you are upon the boulevard. Dance it here and dance it there and keep on dancing hard. Start into the side, do the Paris ride. Swing up here, then wide. Oh, oh, that Gabby Gabby glide. Don't lag or let your feelings hide. Do the side step and then go back the other way. Do the forward dip and see how you begin to sway. Oh, oh, that Gabby Gabby glide. So this is a story definitely worth reading and enjoying on your own. I won't... um take too much time in the analysis of it. I I think just enjoy it as a big part of it. But one thing to think about is what is indicated by the type, the, the mode of expression of the author and the, the editor based on their own ideologies. So for instance, it's the editor who's trying to tell the artist, the writer, the contributor to be more heroic, use better, use different verse you know, and increase his own verse. And he has this whole ideology of the subconscious. And he says it this way, the sublimely terrible roar of the lioness that has been deprived of her cubs is dramatically as far above her customary whine and purr as the kingly and transcendent utterances of Lear are above the level of his senile vaporings. So he talks about it in a very academic way. And to to some degree, he's talking about Shakespeare. And then he goes on. But it is also true that all men and women, all, so pay attention, all men and women, including the editor, <laughs> all men and women have what may be called a subconscious dramatic sense that is awakened by a sufficiently deep and powerful emotion, a sense unconsciously acquired from literature and the stage that prompts them to express those emotions in language befitting their importance and histrionic value. So he has a kind of affected way, like he's purposely doing a certain kind of talking, and he, as he because he has a certain type of uh, view of what is good art. And when he comes face-to-face with a terrible emotional ef- uh, event, his wife leaving him, how does he talk? He talks like a, a street bum or, you know, a character from some mob movie. Say, Shaq, ain't that a hell of a note? Wouldn't that knock you off your porch? Or, excuse me, wouldn't that knock you off your perch, Shaq? Ain't it hell? No. Shaq, ain't it? Right, like there's, and, and you could even read that differently. Like, let me read it straight without any effect, effectiveness. Say, Shaq, 
Ain't that a hell of a note? Wouldn't that knock you off your perch, Shaq? Ain't it hell now? Shaq, ain't it? And so you see, there's, um, it's a very plain colloquial, you know, your neighbor talks that way, like the non-academic, the uh, guy without a high school or girl without a high school education talks like that, but that's completely opposite to his own view. So one of the, so if you think about it, there's actually something to contemplate here. There's something about this affected, affected editor who's trying to purposely shape the consciousness of 400,000 people who read his magazine. He's very proud of the 400,000 people. Although the artist thinks it would be a million if he went with a different route. So the argument is about this romantic use of high, highfalutin language versus not. The, you know, again, the editor thinks that you can, but, and his soul, it's not integrated into his soul. That's one of the things that happens because when the emotional event happens, he's just an editor. He's just a normal guy who's just pretending essentially. Now the artist has a different view. The artist thinks quite opposite of that. People in real life don't fly into heroics and blank verse at emotional crisis. They simply can't do it. If they talk at all on such occasions, they draw from the same vocabulary that they use every day. They draw from the same vocabulary that they use every day and muddle up their words and ideas a little more, that's all. Now, how does the author talk when he has an emotional experience? My God, why hast thou given me this cup to drink? Since she is false, then let thy heaven's fairest gifts, faith and love, become the jesting bywords of traitors and fiends. So in his soul, this author, who was not writing like this, had that in him. That's part of the twist, is he had it in his soul, but he wasn't doing it because he had a certain theory in his mind. He had a theory that people don't talk like that. I'm going to write like the way people talk, and it's not like them. So there was a conflict between the way he truly was in his soul his romantic soul and the way that he would uh, actually write. And this is probably what really led to his lack of success. So it's just interesting to think about the different ways that these two characters um, interacted with the world, their theories on art, and then how that affected in reality. The editor did not have anything romantic or literary in his soul when the emotional event happened, but the artist did in this case. So what do you think? Do you think that we should have highfalutin language in our short stories? Should we have imaginative ingenuity and a sense of drama? That is what we're looking for in The Troubadour. It doesn't have to be in the same style as O. Henry. It's in your own style. But the idea is the three important elements of romantic literature, ingenuity, imagination, a sense of drama. Those three ingredients are essential. There's more to a great romantic drama. There's more to a great romantic short story. There's more to a great romantic novel. However, you should start with those three key elements. Ingenuity, imagination, a sense of drama. So go out there and write.